the past few weeks here at the head of the school year and the head of the kickoff of fall and our small groups and Sunday school and all that kind of jazz, we've been trying to take opportunity to renew our aspirations as a congregation. We have this aspiration to be, as you'll hear us say, a one-anothering community that exists to adore Christ and to embody him and all his warmth and wonder in the world. And we're taking a few weeks to, to look at these aspirations, to remind ourselves of them much as you would if you were renewing your marital vows. You wouldn't be more married to do that, but it's a way of rehearsing to yourself the commitments that you've made and the things that you're striving for. And since we don't belong to ourselves, we're going to be looking here at what we think Jesus would have us striving for, what our great gladness to strive for is. And so we talked about the church, just to catch you up to speed, and saying whether we think so or not, the church is the, the locus, the focus of Jesus' activity on this planet to give a sign to the world of what he's aiming to do. And not only to the world, it's a theater. It's a theater for the world and for rulers and authorities and invisible places to have a look-see at just how brilliant and creative, magnificent, and his reconciling powers Jesus really is. That we're the, the movie show where all of creation, seen and unseen, gets to marvel at Jesus. And we talked about the fact that last week we have been picked. We've been pre-wanted, pre-loved, and all the moments and molecules of our existence have been choreographed so that we could be existing as a people for worship, to use Paul's word, to exist for the praise of his glory and how we need to talk to ourselves instead of listening to ourselves, to remind ourselves that this is what we're for. People are for being walking alleluias to our God. And today we're looking at a second component of that. Not only are we called as a community to be a community of worship that adores Christ, but we have this calling. Paul says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And I'm not going to get into all that Kyle just read. Don't tell anybody, but sometimes I just have a long passage of Scripture read so that you can, for instance, hear a long passage of Scripture. You know, because just... God's Word is important and all that jazz. But I'm not going to talk about everything he just read, even though I'm glad for everything he just read. But Paul says, I want you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. And he says, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Paul has been talking to this church about how they've been configured how they've been architected to be this work of art for the world to see who does these good works that they've been commissioned to do. They are the repository of God's grace. They are the neighborhood of God's spirit. The only place on the planet where socioeconomic and racial divides can be conquered because of the work of Jesus. And 
He's saying, you've been selected, you've been wanted, you've been privileged. Now, live out that privilege. And part of that privilege is to be a one another in community of nurture. That's what it means to live a life of love as Christ loved us. He gives us some specific ways of that. But let's think about that for a minute just broadly, this idea of love. And it occurred to me that a conversation in our house the other day was valuable and relevant for our discussion here as we think about living out our callings. The discussion revolved around a question I asked and my wife referred to this woman who calls herself the fly lady and I thought that's a peculiar name, the fly lady. wonder what that could mean. Does that mean she has the ability to see in all kinds of different ways? Well, no, it doesn't mean that apparently. It, it means, I was told, that she has this name because fly, finally loving yourself. It's an acrostic, fly. And when my son heard this, and I, I made some joke, and I don't think my wife heard me, about, I don't think the book's about that. The book's about organization, and it's a book that's left out so that I'll see it in hopes of changing. I'm an organizational PhD student. So if you no, I'm not. I'm a mess. But this woman uh, is a, you know, some kind of organizational guru, and, and her she's called the Fly Lady. Finally, loving herself, yourself. And I thought of Whitney Houston uh, when I was a kid, who told us that the greatest love of all was living inside of her. Learning to love yourself is the greatest love of all. That's what she's saying. And my son said to me, "Wait a second. Doesn't the Bible say you shouldn't love yourself?" And I, being a master of home theological education, took this as an opportune moment to talk about, even on the go, all the intricacies of anthropology as the Bible sees it and our understanding of God's love and how we deal with ourselves. And so I took it as a segue to rehearse for him, I think lost interest quickly, A very important question when he says, doesn't the Bible say you shouldn't love yourself? And I said, well, it depends on what you mean. And see, I'm constantly channeling C.S. Lewis, and I'm remembering this essay he writes called, There are Two Ways with the Self. And I say to my son, who's now swinging a bat, just kidding, you weren't swinging a bat yet, were you? He He listened to some of it. It depends on if it means, if loving yourself means preferring yourself to other selves, the Bible's really against that. There's a kind of self-love that we have. It's actually the kind that Jesus assumes when he says, love your neighbor as yourself. He's not saying you need to learn to love yourself, then you can love others. He's kind of assuming that you're all experts at preferring yourself to others, at being the primary focus in your mind, of constantly construing everything in terms of whether it values, enhances your life or not enhances it, advantages you or disadvantages you. He realizes that we're all kind of frequent meditators on ourselves. And so he says, you know, do that to other people. You're so good at it. Forget about yourself. Think about other people. Paul says it this way. Be completely humble. And gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. 
you, when you're patient with somebody and you suffer alongside them, you're putting up with them. When you're bearing with somebody in love, you're letting them be a nuisance to you in a sense. You're letting their life inconvenience your life. And so you're saying, as Paul would say somewhere else, in humility, consider others better than yourself. You should have the attitude of Christ who didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself a servant. And so there's one sense in which there's this humility that ought to characterize us that says, you know what? I need to prefer all other selves to mine. I'm not in competition with the human race. Everybody I meet is not my competitor. They're an object of my affection. I ought to prefer them to myself. And so in that sense, the Bible says, don't love yourself. If loving yourself means preferring yourself to everybody else, you ought to prefer others. In that sense, you ought to be, like I heard at an EE seminar once, you ought to be more like a dog than a cat. And maybe you've heard me say this before, but you realize, of course, that in the, there's a part in the scriptures where it talks about God's great disdain for the one part of his creation that was not good, and that is cats. <laughs> God does not like cats. He told me this in my quiet time this morning. And no, he likes them, he likes them. I just don't. But, and, but we have one. He ate through our screen at our house, and I have never hurt him. I feed them. I'm concerned for him to be fed. I, I don't want any living creature to go without food, including myself. And so, but a cat, I was told once, cat theology, a cat will, you know, cats make you look stupid. They make you feel stupid. They look at you as if you are stupid. And they, a cat, I'm, I'm told, a cat will say, oh, this person, they, they feed me. They take care of me. They pet me. They, they love me. I must be God. Whereas Diggy, the most magnificent dog on Mount Olive Road, sorry, Jameson, Diggy, that's our dog, and all dogs, they are more of the mind of, hey, this, this guy feeds me, he takes care of me, he pets me, he loves me. He must be God. See, there's this kind of humility that recognizes all this attention that's given to me must be the result of something far greater than me. A cat has no comprehension of that. And so when you're thinking about love for yourself, is it okay to love yourself? The Bible says, no, 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 not if it means preferring yourself, but if it means having the humility. It means you prefer others with, with a humility that, that gets just as excited about the good things that someone else does as if you had done it yourself. But there's another way with the self. There's another way that the Bible would say very much you should love yourself, and that is using the language of acceptance. Paul says, when he's reminding them about their calling, he says, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love. See, one of the things that the Bible does a lot of, you hang around there any amount, you'll start noticing this, is it always makes the basis for our actions the initiating action of God toward us first. So, for instance, it doesn't say, be merciful to people, and then maybe I'll think about not smiting you tomorrow. That's not what God says. He says, 
I'm merciful to you, so be merciful to others. The Apostle Paul can say in Romans, as he's making this argument for his people to live out this gospel air that they breathe in the midst of their conflicts about religious practices and what food they should eat and what Christian bands they should listen to. He says, accept one another just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. See, there's a kind of way of dealing with yourself where you start to realize, wait a second, wait a second, God actually likes me. God is patient with me. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. God actually forgives me. He he says I'm a dearly loved child. That's an interesting thing to consider that the Bible almost wants you to consider that. To think of yourself as someone that God is fond of. And to let that be an indicator of how you deal with yourself. Sometimes I'll hear one of my children, and I've done a lot of this myself, and a lot of you do it too. I'll hear one of them berating themselves, being overly severe with themselves. You've seen Chris Farley, surely, in these old Saturday Night Live skits where he's on a stage with Bruce Willis. He's insecure. He doesn't know what to say as he's leading this talk show, and he says something like, You, you, you remember that? You remember that movie you made called Die Hard? You remember when you when you blew up that when you blew up that car? And Bruce Willis is like, y- y- yes. And he goes, man, that was awesome. And then instantaneously he realizes what a buffoon he's been, and he starts to castigate himself right there on the stage. You're so stupid. And he's just cursing himself for what a fool he is. Right there in front of God and everybody and Bruce Willis. <laughs> and a lot of you do that. And I've heard myself saying to my children before when they, when they, when they mess up or something and, they, and they're harsh with themselves, I say, please don't speak. Call yourself an idiot. Don't speak so harshly about someone who's so precious to me. I don't want you talking to somebody that I love that way. And... There's a way that the Bible says of dealing with oneself. Some spiritual writers have called it patience with the self. That says, you know what? What business do I have of being preoccupied and destroying myself when Christ himself has not done that? Christ has accepted me. He's seen clear through every diseased portion of my heart. And has said, I want you. You're badly dilapidated. In need of massive repair. And I'm moving in. And I'm not going to stop till you're finished. And so there's a sense in which you get to have this freedom. Of saying, I can accept myself because I've been accepted. I can, in that respect, love myself. Because I have been the object of God's love. Now, why am I talking about that? Here's why. Because 
as you may have noticed in your own life, I've certainly noticed it in mine. I've heard Leanne Payne, my favorite charismatic Reformed Episcopal lady, who says, whoever is not... Whoever does not accept himself is engrossed with himself. Whoever does not accept herself is engrossed with herself. One of the things that happens if you are not able to be unriveted from yourself and and begin to look outward to God and other people, if you're not able to get over your pride, and that is pride whenever you feel constantly guilty for screwing up again, You lose your temper again. You gossip about somebody again. You get your feelings hurt too easily by someone again. You find yourself slipping into some addictive pattern again. And you act surprised. As if you're only theoretically a sinner. As if you're only dealing with a God allergy and abstract. Well, Jesus isn't surprised, and the only reason you're surprised is because of your pride. You think you should be better than you are. But Jesus says, you're accepted in me. You're not going to attain any sort of perfection. But guess what? I have. I'll give it to you. I'll live in your place. I'll, I'll die in your place. I give you my righteousness. You are accepted before God now. Forget about yourself. Our professor Steve Brown used to say at the beginning of semesters, he would say to all his students, and people who go to reform seminaries are like people who go to Covenant College. They're, they're uptight. They're nervous. They're scared of not doing well enough. They know their salvation depends on getting an A. And they would sit in his class and he would say, and I, I, won't, I tried his voice earlier. I won't do it. I haven't smoked enough. He'll, and I haven't been given his magnificent voice. But he would say, guys, put your pens down. You've all got A's. Now, now listen to me. Interact with what I'm saying. You've already all got A's. Don't be a nervous wreck. Don't record what I'm saying. Don't furiously type away on your laptop. You've already all got A's. Now, the accreditation societies didn't like that. They needed it to be rigorous for it to be. So he had to start making people earn it. But I've always loved that. Because I think you have to actually believe that not only the start, but all the facets of your Christian life, over and over again, you've got to come back to this reality. Your salvation, your acceptance with God does not depend on you. It's outside of you. Jesus, who's the former of this community, He is your salvation. He is your justification. He is your righteousness. And so anytime you're looking at you and trying to make any kind of discernment, so he loves me, he loves me not, feeling really good when you think you're doing good and feeling destroyed when you don't think you're doing so good, or just walking around with your low-grade guilt fever that most of you are walking around with, it's because you haven't truly accepted your acceptance. And so you get this joy of living out a calling where you say, you know what, God actually, he's not contemptuous, he's not frowning, he's not saying he loves me and then winking and being like, but really, I'm about to kill you. (laughs) He actually thinks you're pretty great. Now that makes you uncomfortable. 
I know that. It makes me uncomfortable to say. I'm, you're going to bring me up on charges. But God actually cares about you. He thinks, that's my image. I've given up a lot to make you mine. Now, I've spent a lot of time talking about that today. You know why? Because if you're not ex- able to accept yourself some way, you're going to be engrossed with yourself, which means you will have no capacity to love anyone ever. You'll be constantly thinking about how you're being loved and never thinking about living a life of love. You'll constantly be thinking about how people are speaking of you. You'll never be able to think about how you respond to them, no matter what they say to you, for their benefit. Now, I know some of you are saying, but I would like to believe that. I know theoretically that God loves me, but I don't feel anything. And a lot of us don't think that something's real unless we feel it. To that, I would say two things. One, you realize, I hope, that part of the Christian life is learning that there are all sorts of things that are very real, but you can't see them or touch them or feel them. That's part of our worldview, right? That God created all things visible and invisible. There are invisible created things. Jesus is invisible. His spirit is invisible, but it's active. And it lives in us and it moves us. And sometimes, the second thing I'll say about that, is that sometimes the spirit who has is the shedding abroad of God's love in our hearts. Sometimes the Spirit makes us feel euphoric. Sometimes you get a glimpse of just how fantastic it is to be the object of God's delight, the apple of His eye. Sometimes as you're singing, you understand what William Cooper was saying when he said, sometimes a light surprises the Christian when he sings. It is the Lord that rises with healing in his wings. Sometimes you encounter it as you're sharing God's love with others. You get a sense, oh my gosh, it's true. Holy cow, it's true. And C.S. Lewis says, you know what you should do? When you get those, take them as birthday cards from the Holy Spirit. Anniversary presents. I'm thinking of you, the Spirit says. All of the Christian life is not lived like that, but sometimes you get that. But all of the Christian life is lived with you as an object of God's intense and loyal and tenacious affection. And so what you've got to do is you've got to say, I'm a dearly loved child. I'm going to live a life of love, which means a life of sacrifice, which means a life of working, not just for my own benefit, Paul says, but so that I may have something to give to those in need. It means speaking, not just for my own benefit, to get my own gunk out, but speaking so that it might edify others and it might impart life to them. It means acting as if it's true. It means believing, you know what? If I knew for certain that God loved me so fiercely and so comprehensively that nothing could change it, what would I do? And then doing that. What risks would I take? And then taking those. I have a friend... I went to visit in the hospital. He was a pastor. And he told me that he used to notice when he went to the hospital that he always got lightheaded. He was a germaphobe. And the inconvenient thing about visiting a hospital when you're a germaphobe is that apparently there are some germs there. And so he said, I, you know what I used to discover 
is that I would get lightheaded and I'd have to make a really quick visit or I'd be on the verge of passing out. And eventually, he said, you know what I discovered? I realized the problem was that I was not breathing. And I, and I don't have any medical training, but I was like, I think that's a problem. Not breathing is hard. I don't recommend that's free pastoral care. You need to breathe. But he said, you know what? Subconsciously, I was so afraid of breathing in germs, the noxious particles that are floating around, eager to violate my lungs and to attack my nostrils, that I was subconsciously just kind of holding my breath, breathing shallowly as if that would keep them out. And I thought, you know what? That dude was taking unseen things, things he could not see but knew were there at a high level of seriousness. That's what the life of faith is, except not so negative as that. The life of faith is saying an unseen thing is that God actually loves me, that my sins are no longer the issue, that my failings are no longer the issue because Christ has taken care of them. And so now I don't have to be constantly inward gazing. I can act as if God loves me. Even if I don't feel it. Even if I think that could not be right. I'm just going to act as if he loves me. You know what? Sometimes when you do that, you discover, because the Apostle John says for this nurturing community, that God's love is made complete in us as we love one another. And so sometimes when you just say, you know what? God loves me, so I'm going to live a life of love. I'm not going to live for myself. I'm going to live for someone else. I'm going to carry their burdens for them. I'm going to share God's kindness to them. I'm going to convince them that God actually loves them. They don't have to be so down on themselves. And as you do that, you get to encounter the fullness. You get a taste of the sweetness as you share it. Sharing your faith, sharing your love, sharing your life in all these arenas. You get to taste the wonders, but you first... You've got to be willing to act as if it's true, even if it doesn't seem so true. I'm about to close here, but I do want you to see this. That if you want to fulfill this calling that we've been given, to live a life of love, to be a community that really does, in living color, broadcast the wonders of God's reconciling mercies, the healing and satisfying power of his love, then you've got to accept his acceptance. And then you've got to be willing to prefer others over yourself, and then you've got to be willing to act as if it's true to live this life of love. Whether in your service, we're told that the body builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Everybody's needed here. Each part has to serve and do its work, and as it does its work, love is multiplied. The wonders of God are multiplied and experienced. But you can't do it if you're engrossed with yourself. You've got to be willing to say, the gospel gives me permission to forget about me so that I can focus on God and others. The other thing that the apostle says here that's valuable to me is as we enter into our 12th year of existence as a church is this whole idea of whose the church is, whose vision it is. And listen to this, what the 
apostle says, but to each one of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. That's why it says when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. The apostle has this pretty comprehensive understanding that the gathering here, the way his church is, it's his prerogative. Jesus has picked you and me. He is building his church. He is this head of this grace appropriations committee, and he's giving people gifts and abilities and skills and callings, and all of it is so that together we'll be a living picture of him. That's what maturity will look like, we're told. Becoming, growing in the knowledge of the Son of God, becoming mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, that we're going to be looking like him more and more, smelling like being experienced like him, even though sometimes we wear a gross disguise. But it's his church. And the reason I say that is because a lot of us, if we start to hang around the Bible, we read any Christian literature, you go to Covenant College and you get yourself a Christian worldview. One of the things, which is a great thing to do and worth $35,000 a year, when <laughs> it is, it is, it's a great place. But you know, one of the things that happens to you is that if you stop believing that this is his place and that we're here not because of our smartness and our cleverness and how snappy addressers we are and how cool we are, we're here because we have this one thing in common. We have all been acted on by God. We are all the beneficiaries of a sacrifice from the Son of God who is fully paid from all our sins and rescued us from the tyranny of the devil. That's what binds us together in the gift of his spirit. That's what makes us what we are. So there's liable to be all kinds of different people here. Not the ones you would have picked, but they're the ones that Jesus picked. And it's easy to come into a Christian community and have a lot of ideas about what the community should be like. When I say one anothering, to know in your gut what true one anothering is. To know what truly being a church is. To know what truly following Christ is. To know what truly your small group should be like. Or how our outreach to the poor should be like. And you have these ideas. You come in as a critic. And you know what invariably happens? You start looking around and nothing matches your vision. And then you pronounce it all a failure. Those people don't even follow Jesus. Those people probably don't even read the Bible. Those people don't know nothing about love. See, one of the tricks that the, these devils conversing in screw tape letters had was the senior devil says to the younger one, you might not be able to keep your patient from going to church. If you can keep him from being a part of the visible body of church of Christ, that's your best bet. But he might go to church. So if you can get him there, let him shop around and let him become a critic where the enemy means for him to be a pupil. When they say enemy, they mean God. In other words, let them come into the body of Christ with a lot of preset notions of what it should be like. And then they'll be untouchable. 
They'll be like all the people in our culture, cynics, judging everything, committing to nothing. He says, because you know what happens if he goes in as a pupil, if he goes in with the humility of a pupil, he's liable to learn about God anywhere. He's liable to be affected by anyone. You know that I think that movies are the most magnificent, the second most magnificent part of God's creation, right? That's an unqualified statement. And it's true. That's in the Bible too. And I've read a number of reviews of movies over the years. And you know what I've realized is I don't like to read most movie reviews because most movies are reviewed by critics, which means that they go into a movie expecting things to be wrong. Every now and again, they're shocked that something went off right. But Roger Ebert, I like Roger Ebert. He's a common man's critic. And I read Roger Ebert because we have similar sensibilities, and maybe I'll get his job one day. But you know what happens, I think, when... I've never talked to Roger. We don't talk anymore. We had a falling out. But you know one of the things that Roger Ebert does when he does a movie review? I think he does this. If If I were talking to him, I think he'd say this. He, like me... He realizes when he goes to watch a movie that just by virtue of the fact that it's a movie, it's already halfway to Magnificent. And so he goes in expecting this. It's liable to be all right. It's probably already a C just by being a movie. And then if there are a few other good elements, it might make a B or an A before you know it. Because he goes in as a pupil. He goes in expecting to enjoy it. He goes in expecting to be affected by it. He goes in expecting that the story will interact with his life. He doesn't go in expecting to find fault. Bonhoeffer in one place says, a Christian community, often Christian communities spring up because of someone's wish dream. And if God is kind to us, he won't let us live in an imaginary world. This happens in your marriage too, by the way. Most marriages start with a wish dream. You have some idea in your head about what your spouse is going to be, and they, within five minutes of the wedding vows, prove to you otherwise. And you think you got ripped off. But he says people come into the Christian community, they have a wish dream. And if God loves you, and if he's kind, he won't let us live in an imaginary world. He makes us live in the most real world, so he'll shatter it most expeditiously. Because if you come in with a dream, you'll come in as the judge of the community. And you'll you'll judge your brothers according to your standard in your head. You'll judge God. And lastly, you'll wind up having to judge yourself. You'll declare the whole thing a failure. But if instead, you learn how to love actual people, which is what we've got here. And you learn to realize this is Jesus' invention. He's choreographed this. I didn't have no plan 10 years ago that we'd be out here perfectly situated right where all the people are in this beautiful spot in a former workshop. It's all these unshowered people. No, you're showered, but you're going to need another shower after this sweat fest. But you know what? Jesus is up to something. And if you enter into this life as not a demander, but a thankful receiver, And recognizing who knows what Jesus is up to. He wanted me to be a part of this. He might want them to be a part of this. All of a sudden, your love, well, it becomes different. Henry Nouwen said this, and I'm closing. He said, community is the place where the person you least want to live with always lives.
Community is the place where the person you least want to live with always lives. This is why we don't form churches with just people we like. We, we're part of something that Je- Jesus has drafted a church. That grace cost to himself. Great cost to himself. He's picked the people. And we have to be constantly reminding ourselves, we're dearly loved, so are they. We're the community of nurture. We, one another, recognizing the people that we serve are people for whom, like us, Christ died. We might not think that's what a Christian should look like. We might not think that person is so hot after all, but we have to back up and realize, how did I get to be part of this? God wanted me. He wants them too. Athy Keith was described this way. He was an old man. He'd stop the guys in the, this country town of Port William when they were making fun of another. He had a tremendous influence around us, said Jaber Crow, and as he got older, he seemed always to become more tender. He cared for his mules and his cow, and he spoke of them as if they were members of his family. He always had something to say to babies and small children. He talked to the dogs he met in his passages through town of a lame hound named Nats, who belonged sort of to everybody in those days, and got around on a three-legged lope, Athy would say with amusement and respect. There goes old Nats doing his arithmetic, putting down three, carrying one. He had been a good man always, I think, but this tenderness was new. It was the tenderness of an old man who had been busy all his life, but now had time to pay attention to useless things. He had always been a good man, but this tenderness was new. It was the tenderness of a man who had been busy all his life, but now had time to pay attention to useless things. Our call to be a people of nurture is that our one anothering would be a deep paying attention to one another, even when you think it seems useless. Because I can assure you of this, this is Jesus's church. He has aspirations. He wants the people who are here. And he wants others. And he privileges us to be the living depiction of that very real nurture that's meant to heal us back to life so that we can share it with each other in our words and in our deeds. I hope we'll do that. Amen.